Lo distinto te ha encontrado. Esto es Infinita Podcast. Encuentra nuevos episodios cada semana. Suscríbete. DT Decentralized Technologies. Conversaciones sobre blockchain y sus diferentes aplicaciones. Tecnología del dinero, su adopción, educación y regulación. De la mano de pioneros y expertos en tecnología. Conducido por Esteban de la Peña e invitados especiales. Esto es DT Podcast. Comenzamos. Buenos días y bienvenidos a esta edición especial. Este es el DT Podcast, eh, episodio número 50. Tenemos a un invitado internacional con nosotros. Y tenemos también aquí a Rafa, cofundador de DT, con en cabina. Eh, les damos la bienvenida. Están escuchando Radio Infinita. Recuerden que nos pueden eh, mandar preguntas al 5741-1290. 5741-1290. Pues eh, el día de hoy, nuestra entrevista realmente... Eh, es alguien que en el espacio tiene ya un, un buen tiempo, ya un buen tiempo en el espacio eh, actuando, tiene una visión impresionante, es alguien que realmente eh, ha también ido al campo y ha conversado con personas en, en, en Afganistán eh, sobre, sobre lo que es Bitcoin y todo esto. Entonces, tiene mucho que contar. Estoy muy emocionado por esta entrevista, esta entrevista va a ser en inglés. Uh, su nombre es Robert Biglione. Uh, Robert, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, guys. I wish my Spanish was better and we could do this in Spanish. <laughs> don't worry, don't worry. A lot of uh, Guatemalans uh, speak English, actually. Um, we, we have one of the highest uh, call centers uh, numbers here in, in Guatemala. Ah, so. <laughs> perfect, perfect. So, um, Rob, um, thank you once again, you know, for, for your time and, and, and um, your availability for, for this interview. Let's, let's just start, you know, from, from the beginning. Let's start from, you know, wh when was the first time you, you heard about Bitcoin? When, um, when, was, when was, like, your aha moment when you read Satoshi's white paper and started the whole thing? So I'll, I'll start this off by a, a little preface that uh, personally, my philosophy is very much that I believe in freedom and, and privacy for everyone. So when I first heard about Bitcoin in 2010, uh, I was blown away. In fact, I wrote an email to my close friends and my girlfriend at the time, who's now currently my wife. And I, I told them, you have to check out this Bitcoin thing. This is, this is the future. Um, Back then, we had no idea that it would be so successful or even a fraction as successful as it is now. But what I loved about it was that it, it empowered the people with their own money. And this was something that, you know, it, for the last hundred years or more than a hundred years, you know, in, in the age of, you know, uh, governments taking on the central banking role, before that we had gold, we had silver, and even then coinage was always done by the governments. But I loved this idea of taking you know, a 21st century technology version of money. Um, and that's what Bitcoin did. So I was so excited for it. And, you know, I, my, my big driver was that we're decentralizing finance for the world. And, and that's why I got into it. Nice. So, well, putting, putting your, your, your fundamentals, 
wait, when was it? When was it? When was this? Sorry, I didn't get the. the 2010. Date. 2010. Nice. 2010. Yeah, so exactly. I, I heard in in an interview you you know you are you are a veteran and uh, you were deployed in Afghanistan and then you also um, like talk to people in Afghanistan about Bitcoin. Could you tell us a little bit more about that experience? Yes, exactly. So I was uh, I'm a military veteran. I was an Air Force scientist, so a physicist and mathematician. I worked in Air Force Space Command on intelligence satellites and and launch vehicles. You know the rockets that send the satellites up. And, um, you know, towards the tail end of my military career, I got into more operational intelligence and I spent the last couple of years in Afghanistan. And it was when I was in Afghanistan that I became more active in Bitcoin. So from 2010 until about 2012, I, I was just following a big fan of Bitcoin. I, you know, I started trying to participate in the Bitcoin economy, um, you know, by trying to offer, say, labor services, tutoring people in physics and math for, for Bitcoin. Um, but it was in 2012 when I, I finally got to Afghanistan that I, um, you know, I just started spreading the word when, when I was there. And initially it was with close uh, friends and colleagues who were also there. And then we started trying to uh, or we started hosting uh, like seminars where we would um, post flyers all over all over the place and try to get locals to come and start learning about this new form of money. Wow. And I can tell you the reception. And this is what I learned at the time was. Um, to Afghans, the idea of decentralized money was enormously appealing because they have a very volatile currency themselves, and just their economy is so volatile. They have no idea, you know, what tomorrow is going to bring. And in these types of areas of the world, Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies have enormous value. Wow, yeah. I think in general, it's just there's so many, like, uh, you know, different uh, like the layers layers there's so many layers to to this and depending on where you are and what type of uh, needs you have you can you can look at it from different perspectives and, and I've seen you know the in, in different podcasts like uh, the leading podcast they, they talk about it in a, in a more advanced uh, economy perspective and and here the needs are just you know very 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 different. And I think they're very similar to, to what you just mentioned. Um, yeah, for example, I in Guatemala, there are no capital markets. So people have like very few options on, on what to invest in, mainly real estate. Yeah, and you create a real estate bubble very e easily with that type of thing. So, um, yeah, so from, from there, like that must have been like two years spreading the word and talking, and talking really hard to it. Uh, when did you decide, like, okay, let's 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 build a project? Because I heard you you were doing your doctorate uh, on the side as well, and, and Zen was actually kind of like a side project for you. Exactly. Yeah. So what happened was I I was uh, fortunate enough to um, take a break in my career and go back to school for my PhD, and uh, you know I, I transitioned at this point from the hard sciences to the social sciences. So I started studying financial economics um, at the doctorate level and. I, I was very lucky to have a very permissive department um, that allowed me to study Bitcoin from an asset pricing perspective, which is very unusual at the time. Um, this was in 2014 that I started this research. And in 2014, from the academic perspective, Bitcoin was totally crazy. And, you know, only only like first year PhD students would be crazy enough to start studying it. Uh, but that's exactly what I did. And, you know, I did that for four years 
And I, they actually hired me back to teach uh, a Bitcoin and blockchain applications to finance course. I taught it for two semesters at the University of South Carolina. But while I was, I was doing my dissertation work, I, I launched Zencash with my co-founder, Rolf Versluis. And the goal here was really to experiment with a couple of things that we thought were uh, needed to be improved in the Bitcoin world. Um, so the things that we, we started uh, trying to improve here was the governance and economics we thought needed to be improved from Bitcoin. Uh, and then we wanted to extend the privacy technology into a, a, a more scalable form for, say, like business applications. So this was the start of Zencash back in 2017. Wow. And um, so so what what specific things did, did you feel at the time that, that needed to be improved on, on Bitcoin? So you, you mentioned like privacy for, for uh, enterprises. Could you, could you expand a little bit on that? Right. So I think, and I approached it from an economist perspective, right? I was getting my PhD in, in financial economics. And what I thought was lacking was a form of stable equilibrium for Bitcoin. And by this, I mean, uh, you have a whole bunch of people that contribute to the Bitcoin economy, including you guys. So you doing this is contributing to the Bitcoin economy. Um, but the only people that get paid are miners. So this includes you know, developers, people that market Bitcoin, people that run businesses with Bitcoin, people that just try to evangelize Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. No one gets paid except for miners. So I think that this is very unsatisfying from a, a holistic perspective on how you have a dynamic economy built on a protocol. So with Zencash, which is now called Horizon, our, our, like our coin is called Zen, Z-E-N, uh, what we did right away was we changed that. We actually carved out different stakeholder groups, including people that now we call node operators and people that run, say, like a version of master nodes. Um, so they're, they're running our software, they're building our network, they're processing transactions. But in Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, they don't get paid for it. Uh, with, with Zen, they actually get compensated. So that we're was the first a node. group. We also, right, to run a node. And, you know, the second group, and this is kind of a, a general pool. We have a treasury pool of resources. So 20% of the block reward goes to this treasury pool. And this is what funds our team. So we have a very dynamic team of, you know, dozens of professionals that work on our core team here to build this protocol from engineers to marketers and to business development and so forth. And we pay them. We pay salaries, right? We, we give away, um, you know, we have giveaways to the community to try to grow the ecosystem. We do a lot of different things for growth and, and maturing the technology that we actually compensate them directly from the protocol. And this is something that's very different from, from Bitcoin. Well, I, in general, I think this really sums up your entire trajectory, you know, just, just being understanding the cryptographic aspect, the code behind Bitcoin and everything, and then bringing in your... your uh, financial side into it and, and your studies, I think you've, you've created a, a, an amazing an amazing project there. Um, I appreciate it. appreciate that. Thank you. I, I would like to go back again and, and use this, this last three minutes for, for, for your, you know, your uh, creation story because I've, I've, uh, from all the interviews we've had, there are not many people that go and are like so... Um, you know, mathematician, physicians, and then and then physicists, yeah. physicists and, and and then you know, in finance, a doctorate. Um, how how was your relation and, and and mostly during 2010 and 2014? 
which were, I think, the hardest times for, for Bitcoin. If you Googled Bitcoin at that point, it was all catastrophic. Everything is, this is a pyramid scheme and everything. So how did you, you know, talk with your peers during those times and, and, and manage to steer that into a positive conversation of, of, of what it can so, be and the repercussions it can have? Yeah, I mean, it, part of that just goes to my personal philosophy and the friends I, I had around me at the time were people that actually think that the global financial system needs to be improved, right? We, we're very much uh, skeptical of central banks printing trillions of dollars, uh, every central bank. I mean, that's the central banker's only tool in any crisis is to print more money. And, you know, the bottom line there is that I believe it to be unsustainable. And my friends did it as well. So when Bitcoin came around, it was actually a response to the financial crisis in 2007, 2008, and in particular, um, response to the, the central bank's response to the crisis. So uh, Bitcoin, the reason it has a capped money supply is because it was supposed to be a contrast to the uncapped money supply of central banks. So U.S. dollars are printed and tr being printed in trillions of, trillions of currency units. And, uh, you know, the central banks all over the world were doing the exact same thing. So it was not a hard conversation to have with my friends. And remember back then, Bitcoin was an experiment. And I still view it as an experiment. It's just yeah. a much more mature experiment. And it was a no-brainer to start getting involved. Wow. Wow. I mean, yeah, you, you say no-brainer, but not many people really got involved. So uh, we, 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 we I read the Bitcoin paper, I think, in 2009. No, I'll t <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you why, though. I'll tell you why. The, the thing is, the, the mental accounting for people, they think it's all or nothing. It's zero or 100 percent. Right. And this was the, the mistake is it doesn't mean that Bitcoin has to be the best thing ever with no, no problems in, you know, in order to get involved. That everyone should start getting involved a little bit. Like just put a little bit of resources and a little bit of your attention into cryptocurrencies and it doesn't mean that you have to give up everything else. Just start, right? And, and that's the mentality that we had back then. I think the first idea is um, accepting that Bitcoin has value. That's the first way of getting involved, I think. And, and that is happening very fast. That's spreading like a virus. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> exactly. So we, ha we, we came to the end of the first segment. Um, we'll continue in a couple of minutes. So you're listening to DT Podcast with Robert Viglione. Bienvenidos de regreso a esta edición número 50. Es una special live edition. Nos están escuchando aquí en la radio. Saben que si nos pueden, eh, quieren enviar preguntas, por favor, escriban al 5741-1290. Estamos hablando con Rob Viglione, el cofundador de Horizon. Y CEO de Horizon. Y CEO de Horizon. Eh, un personaje interesantísimo dentro del espacio que tiene una trayectoria eh, emocionante. Eh, y creo que... Un verdadero pionero. Verdadero pionero que entiende mucho las, las, los retos que tenemos acá en la región y, y pues eso es lo, 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 que, lo que nos gusta de estarlo entrevistando. Eh, ¿Cambiamos inglés? So, Rob, um, yeah, I mean, we, we did a really a nice sum up in, in, in the first segment. Um, let's go into, like, the importance of creating a new digital uh, financial network or new digital financial possibilities. And, and the repercussions this, this can have uh, for Latin America. So um, Great. No, I, I would love to. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. 
Yeah, so I, I think the, the bottom line is, uh, you mentioned this on the last segment, is that uh, there are countries of the world that just don't have access to, uh, you know, very mature or diverse financial markets, so capital markets. Uh, and this is something, this is a problem. And I think this is one of the central problems that we have, is that many people around the world just don't have the same opportunities and access to, you know, economic resources. And this is, I think, a message that should resonate with all of us. But And there were many people that use this message to have all types of, um, you know, solutions. But I, I think the most productive solution is using this technology to decentralize finance and, you know, bring the world together in, in a global financial system and, and one that empowers people. That's what I find so fascinating about this technology and why I became involved. Right, just like the internet did. I mean, what you're saying is... You could also change money or financial system for information, and that's how it used to be before internet, right? Um, and internet exactly completely right. decentralized yeah. we're, we're the being, way that. Yeah. The, sorry. No, that's exactly right. I completely agree with you. So internet and like the World Wide Web completely decentralized the like anybody in the world can access any piece of information in any other part of the world, and if you try to like, we always try to make this analogy, right? the next step is money. And so this internet-based money is going to do the same. What, what, do you think it's going to do the same for, for, uh, for money as, it ha as the internet did for information? Or what's your perspective on that? It'll do more because money is a building block. And it, 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 all of the things that can be built upon it, in terms of, like, in, including other types of financial assets. So um, you know, a world that I'm, I want to see happen soon is I want to see basically all of the world's financial products, including stocks, bonds, real estate, uh, you know, commodities, precious metals, all of these things, I want to see digitized and offered through, through blockchain to people everywhere. And there should be no barriers to entry into these things. You shouldn't have to be you know, a wealthy American to be able to access the New York Stock Exchange. You should be able to access it with a small amount of money that maybe you have at the end of a week no matter where you are in the world right it should there shouldn't be this economic um you know barrier that you have to cross before you have access to these basic products and this is what i see is so powerful of this technology is we can empower people to participate in a global economy without without borders amazing statement and, and i really think you know at the end of the day as as humans and as society in general We've been digitizing since, what, 50 years? So it, it really it makes sense that by now we, we start making or more efficient markets and that, that this digitized um, abilities to, to really structure and create new social constructs and new social like uh, ways to interact with each other in a more efficient way slash make business more efficiently. This really comes, comes to aid to it's this. It's a net. So how do exactly. you think... Exactly, it's a natural evolution. Yeah, so how do you think... Because, you know, at the end of the day, we, we're right now still separated in different countries and everything, and each country has its own jurisdiction. They have their own uh, institutions that do the regulations. And uh, how can we motivate the regulatory institutions to really open their minds and listen to the possibilities that this have and, and the advantages that they could, this, this could do? So governments need to catch up. There's no question about that. 
and they're not known to be very fast with things, but governments can do things in certain areas. And I think that the driving force here is they have to realize this technology empowers their people. It makes their people's lives much better. So people need to demand access to this technology. They need to demand access to these products. And that's where you're going to see change. And I hope that you know, as we see the, the landscape around the world on how different governments and regulators are approaching this, um, it is different. And I think countries that are being more open to it are going to have the biggest growth because of it. And ultimately, I hope that the competitive pressures uh, make other governments responsive and responsive to helping their people. There's a trade-off here, though. So the trade-off is uh, governments, in some sense, lose some control of of you know some of the financial system because it this is an open public system open to the world um and some governments don't like that and you can see the governments that are have a negative reaction to bitcoin are you can see it's very clearly correlated to places that have less freedom around the world so yeah. bitcoin yeah. is freedom and the more the governments embrace it you can see the healthier societies they have yeah, and you can make an analogy. So we have a friend of ours. Uh, his name is Jeff Pulver. He um, he's one of the pioneers in voice over IP. And back in the day, like in the late '90s, early 2000s, he set up a free voice over IP service called a Free World Dial-Up. And he took on the telecom companies because the FTC, mm-hmm. the, the, the telecom companies were fighting uh, were fighting this voice over IP thing, saying that it should be regulated as a telecommunications service. And Jeff actually, you know, went to the FTC, and there's this thing called the Pulver Act that was enacted, where uh, it, the FTC states that voice over IP is not a telecommunications service, and that just opened the floodgates for innovation, right? We use voice over IP for WhatsApp calls, FaceTime, exactly. Skype, like every, we're talking through voice over IP right yeah. now. Um, and, and, and so it's interesting because, exactly. because the FTC, and, and, and I read the Pulver Act, and they say that um, it cannot be, that voice over IP should not be regulated because they, they need to uh, encourage innovation. So I think that, but at the end of the day, it takes for an individual, a person like Jeff, to actually, you know, be the leader uh, in, in, in front of the government and convince them that it shouldn't be regulated. And I think we need to find leaders like that in each country or in each jurisdiction that will actually, you know, do it for the good of the people. He was hosting this service for free. Um, and, and, that, and that's sort of how, how I think governments can change. What, what has been your experience, you know, talking to regulators No, I, I completely agree with you. And what I'll say, though, is governments that that allow access to this technology to their people will one day be seen as heroes. And it will greatly benefit their societies and ultimately will greatly benefit those governments by having much stronger, wealthier, healthier societies. Um, so I think the argument is very clear. It's the path of innovation or do you want to be closed and let your neighbors innovate around you? Right? It, it's a very clear answer there is, no, you, you should definitely – open the path towards innovation and, you know, basically freedom for your people. Um, so the, we are a U.S. regulated entity, Horizons. So we have two, two organizations right now. We have a nonprofit foundation, which is uh, based in the U.S., and we have also a for-profit technology company, a software development company called Horizon Labs, which is also a U.S. company. So for us, it's very clear that we have to comply with U.S. regulations, 
And thus far, U.S. regulators have been very permissive of, of this technology. Now, where they become more cautious and where you're seeing regulation are at points of exchange where there's money being transferred between, say, U.S. dollar and Bitcoin or U.S. dollar and Zen. That's where regulators focus, and, and that's not our business. So for us, we've been operating in a very permissive environment where there are no restrictions thus far on us creating software. Right. Right. And, and for, for some reason, you decided to go to Panama as well and, and like start there. Maybe you can expand a little bit more of why you know the duality. And, and now you're back in uh, U.S. territory. So um, explain a little bit why, why you, know, you chose Panama and now you're choosing uh, Puerto Rico. Well, Panama is a beautiful country, I think, that is, is on the, the technology frontier, at least in terms of regulation. They're very permissive and open to innovation. In fact, the government there tries to actively look for innovation opportunities. But for me, it was uh, I, I, twofold. One is, you know, just pragmatically, I had friends and colleagues from the company that were living there. So it was a very easy move. And we had clients in Panama. So it, it made sense to go work with some of our large clients. Um, and on the other hand, I believe that the biggest marginal value for this technology is in Latin America. So it made sense to put myself right there in the heart of Latin America to try to build out our presence and build out our organization. And you know, I was very fortunate with that. I, I had an, an awesome experience in Panama. And now, like you said, I'm back in U.S. territory. I'm in uh, Puerto Rico, which is, you know, it, it's um, U.S. territory, but it's still Latin America. Yeah, so how's your Spanish, Rob? Are you taking classes? Hablo un poquito de español, pero como un niño de cinco años. Perfecto, perfecto. Not sufficient for this interview. Okay, we still have a couple of minutes, I think. Let's let's stretch it out. So where do you see the leapfrogging capabilities for Latin America? So it's going to be on... On opportunities to create opportunity, the growth will come from creating opportunities for people in Latin America. And unfortunately, we've seen too many scams in the early days. Say in 2017 times, I, I think some of the the earliest forays into Latin America with companies in the space were scams or maybe low quality projects. And I think this has hurt the industry. So I think the big leapfrog frog moment in Latin America will be when you have a very very solid, fundamentally strong business, say like Horizon, that, that creates opportunities for people to um, form their own businesses, earn money by participating, by creating value. Uh, and we're experimenting with a bunch of these things. We're creating you know, gaming platforms, community hubs, uh, learning environments for people to actually get paid to learn, um, get paid to participate in games. So there, this is where I see a lot of the growth happening. And then I think on the merchant side, you're going to see a big opportunity when you have products and, and we're creating them as well, like a stable, a stable dollar, a stable peso. We'll, we'll do, you know, a stable, uh, well, uh, I mean, uh, depending on, on the environment, we have big clients in Mexico, so we're, we're focusing on a stable peso. But when we have these stable coin products that have underlying cryptocurrency as their backbone so that they can actually be decentralized and then create and give an incentive to merchants to use them, This, I think, is that aha moment for merchants all over Latin America to start accepting, you know, these digital payment, uh, digital forms of payment, 
that are outside of the credit card markets. Because with credit cards, you pay very high fees as a merchant to accept credit card payments. But imagine getting paid to accept a cryptocurrency payment and have the same stability as, say, like the dollar. I think that's the moment, and we're probably one or two years from that going going live in a big way, and even within Horizon um, using Zen. So this is where I, I envision we're going to have very viral growth across the board because you'll have customers who have an opportunity to make money by you know convincing merchants to accept it. Merchants will make money by accepting these products, right? And that's where it goes viral. It's kind of this recipe Amazing for viral insight. growth. Amazing insight. Okay, thank you, Rob. So we're Closing this uh, second segment, we're going into the break, two minutes, and then we continue this amazing interview. Thank you for listening, Radio Infinita. Y estamos de regreso en esta súper interesante entrevista con eh, Rob Viglione, el cofundador de Horizon. Eh, bueno, eh, estábamos hablando en general del impacto sobre que puede tener esto sobre la economía. Hemos hablado desde sus orígenes de, de, de Rob a, a su filosofía de, de, de blockchain, el impacto que esto puede tener, eh, la necesidad de crear una buena relación con las entidades regulatorias para que vayan entendiendo, porque al final del día la única barrera que tenemos con tecnología en general es nuestro entendimiento de ella, porque la tecnología pues, es neutral. Ya lo que nosotros hacemos con ella es lo que define eh, todo, ¿verdad? Entonces, eh, ¿cambiamos inglés? Sí. So, Rob, you mentioned Latin America. Um, there, for example, um, Guatemala, there is around 60% of a population that doesn't have a bank account. But there are 11 wow. mobile phone plants per every 10 Guatemalans. So, we're connected to the internet and we're like digital, but... There's, a, there's millions of people who don't have access to digital money. Um, what, so what, what do you think uh, Horizon can do uh, for Latin America? You know, what, what's, what impact is Horizon and crypto in general going to... Can, can Horizon and crypto in general have in Latin America? So this is the big leapfrog opportunity is we can't rely on banks to modernize fast enough. And we can't rely on banks to provide opportunities to, for economic opportunities for large enough amount of people. So we have to take matters into our own hands and the technology that we're developing, the organization that we're building, the community that we're building is exactly that with Horizon. Um, now there are other cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin and, and plenty of other cryptocurrencies that people need to look into. But specifically what we're doing is our entire system is based around sustainable economics. So that empowers people. Right? And, and that's the point here, is we need to empower people. We need to provide them with the tools, the products, the resources, and the knowledge so that they can take care of themselves and their families and participate in this interconnected global economy on equal terms. So that, that's a lot. It sounds like a lot, but we start small, and we start very focused on opportunities where, as an example that I mentioned before, we, we want to make payments simpler and more efficient for people. And by that, I mean, uh, rather than transferring money and paying large fees, you know, to companies like Western Union, MoneyGram, and so forth, being able to do it at very, virtually no cost, uh, being able to, you know, participate with 
with um, global financial products at basically no cost, the same types of products that are available in, in the United States, um, and, and just tearing down borders and providing incentives for people to participate. So that's what we're doing with Horizon. And, and I know it sounds like we're, we're tackling a lot, but we're very focused on starting small. And right now where our technology is, is focusing now is on how we create stable financial products and stable money products, like a stable dollar, a stable peso, um, stable stock products and so forth, using Zen, using our cryptocurrency as, as the collateral vehicle. Um, and this now we're, we're simultaneously building out large distribution channels in Latin America. So we're, we're focusing on technology on one hand and business distribution on, on the other hand, and we're doing this in parallel. So over the next year, you're going to see a lot of our products plugged into very large merchant networks in certain countries in Latin America, Mexico being our biggest one right now. So I, I, I have a feeling there's a lot of uh, remittance um, for vision going on there. Like remittance exactly. and the holy grail yeah, already. It, That's one of them. Actually, it's the first. And we're, we're, we're very fortunate to also have Zen on a great product called Abra uh, that's available in Guatemala as well. So you could actually get Zen on Abra and do remittance with Zen, which is fantastic. I, I love that. But where we're focusing as a company is we're focusing on the, the very boring stuff. And by, by boring, I mean the things that happen all the time in the, in the global economy. Trillions of dollars of invoices happen, you know, every, every, every year, say trillions of dollars of invoices flow across the global economy. And we're tackling that market. So we're getting into the financial infrastructure, the backbone of economies and starting to focus there and decentralize these things so that people can have access to them in a more efficient way using the new blockchain digital economy. Nice. So I'll, I'll, I'll grab a cue on that. And um, I would like to uh, hear your opinion on, on CBDCs because, you know, this is this is going a lot in, in, in the line of what we're saying right now. Basically, money is a public good and everybody mm -hmm. should have access to it. But it's managed by private companies that have to uh, ensure, you know, their their system works so that they have revenue so that they can actually distribute this public good. So for our listeners, CBDCs means Central Bank Digital Currencies. Significa eh, monedas digitales emitidas por bancos centrales. So I'll say I'm not so bullish on that. I, I do think it, it could be a technology improvement for what currently happens. And I would hope that it holds central banks a little bit more accountable. And, and here I speak from the perspective of being an economist. And I don't think that it's responsible to print trillions of dollars in currency units. The response of every central bank cannot be the same every time there's a problem. Just print more money. Right, that should not be the acceptable go-to response. Now, when, when central banks get involved in, in digital currencies, I, I'm skeptical. I, on one hand, I'm optimistic. It's great. It means maybe they'll make these you know, cryptocurrencies more mainstream. But on the other hand, I question the value uh, that they're going to add on the margin. So, you know, I, I'll say I love all experiments. Please, guys, experiment, and we'll see what happens. But I'm much more bullish on the public goods that we're creating with, you know, Bitcoin, with Zen and other cryptocurrencies that are actually not controlled by anyone. They're open public protocols. So I'd like to focus a little bit on on Horizon. What are your thoughts on privacy, uh, on, on privacy around money? 
so I view, and here is where my perspective might be um, a little different than maybe the average person. So I believe that number one, privacy is, is a human right. But number two, I was involved in America's war on terror, right? I was in, I was in Afghanistan for two years. So I, I see that there is a dark side to, you know, say like private finance. Like I would never want to see Zen used to finance hurting people ever. Um, but at the same time, I don't believe that the, the reaction of banning privacy is appropriate. So I'm maybe I'm, I'm sort of in the middle. I'm much more skewed toward privacy because privacy is a human right. And every single person around the world has a right to owning their own money and not disclosing all of the details of what they do with it. You know, and of course, the boundary that I have here in a perfect world, I would say the boundary is up until the point where you want to hurt someone. And maybe when you get to that point, and it's really tough to, to measure, um, that's where all of a sudden I, I don't support, you know, the privacy to go hurt someone. But, I mean, it, in the real world for, you know, the majority of, of use cases, human beings are good. And human beings just want to make their lives better and make their families' lives better. And in these, this very important instance, people have every right to privacy. And that's why we focus as a project on providing you know private or tools of privacy to our users and I, I think m like most governments don't respect people's privacy right um you I know mean, yeah they i would agree with you they they use the excuse of you know money laundering they use the excuse of tax evasion they use the excuse of terrorism to to violate everyone's privacy all the time that's unacceptable right and and i i feel that a solution for this has to come from the people, like from projects and, you know, people designing their own private solutions. So not asking the government like GDPR, well, I think it's great, but asking government to regulate privacy, but just making solutions that cannot be accessed by the government and there's no way that they can stop them. I think that's yeah, that's sort of like the way to drive it because if you want to regulate, from the, regulate privacy from the government's perspective, Like maybe some people in the government, you know, in Congress or whatever, are gonna are gonna support that. But maybe in the intelligence community, they, you know, somebody else is not gonna wanna wanna implement those policies or respect them for citizens of other countries. Yeah, you know, and, and interestingly, so the intelligence community has not come down uh, negatively on cryptocurrencies at all. Um, because, you know, they probably are focusing on educating themselves on, on the tools. Right. Um, so, you know, for instance, Bitcoin is not private. And intelligence agencies love when when uh, nefarious people use Bitcoin because they can track exactly what's going on. <laughs> right. Uh, right. So that's exactly. why I, I would argue that's why you don't see the CIA trying to attack Bitcoin. They probably want people to use Bitcoin. Right. Um, so it, it's it's interesting. I. This is how cryptography went mainstream. Cryptography used to be uh, considered a weapon system by the U.S. government. In fact, it wasn't until RSA just publicly disclosed their, their algorithms to the world and MIT published it that the government lost control. But before that, if you disclosed any cryptographic tools to anyone outside of you know, government channels in the U.S., you would be considered, a, um, it would be considered treason. So wow. I, I view this as very, wow. very analogous. So cryptography was was released in you know the 70s publicly, and it's created a whole new multi-trillion-dollar world where you know our cell phones use basic cryptography. Everything uses cryptography. This call is using cryptography. 
So I think the same utility will be found in cryptocurrencies when governments realize like they can't stop these things. They provide tremendous value across the economy. Um, so why try to stop it? And of course, you'll always find criminals using it, but they're such a small minority and the value significantly outweighs um, those those edge cases. Wow. So my, my mind my mind just blew and uh, we gotta go over for the for the next cut um so you're listening to radio infinita uh interview with uh, rob biglioni and um nos vemos un rato estamos Estamos de regreso, están escuchando el TT Podcast Special Live Edition, una súper, súper entrevista con Rob Biglione. Eh, bueno, en este, este día llegamos al último segmento, qué rápido pasa el tiempo cuando uno tiene tan buenas conversaciones. Eh, hablamos en general en el segmento pasado sobre pues lo, lo, lo que es, eh, creo que lo cerramos con, con un tema muy interesante de dónde viene y proviene criptografía y la importancia de la privacidad. Eh, como un derecho humano como un derecho humano entonces eh, pues ahora vamos a entrar a, a, a lo que es el proyecto el Horizon como tal Horizon también tiene la ventaja de que ustedes tienen acceso como guatemaltecos a participar en este proyecto a través de Abra un shoutout ahí a, a Abra que es una aplicación que pueden descargar y comprar eh, cualquier tipo de activo digital eh, we switch to English now, so Rob, um, before we, 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 we also start in the horizon, I just want to do a, a quick uh, shout out here to Fiscal Digital, which is, is a Guatemalan project that uh, also worked on, on your blockchain. I don't know if, if, if you want to share a little words on that and then we can, we can keep on, on with, with, with Sen because I want to use this opportunity. I mean, Fiscal Digital is an amazing project and is empowering Guatemalans to really... Um, make a solid case and legitimize their um, our democracy by counting our votes together yeah actually so for us that was that was a very powerful project where uh, one big benefit of blockchain technology and by this I mean public blockchains where they're not controlled by anyone um, is that they record truth and you can't change the truth. So as soon as something's recorded and it's accepted by the network, and here what we recorded were uh, results from polling stations around the country for the Guatemalan elections. And this was a project actually um, used our technology, but it was one of our community members, actually one of our, our very active community developers that built a tool that uh, enabled um, you know, the upload of um, polling center results onto our blockchain so as soon as they're there you can't tamper with them and you can't change the results and this is just one small example of how blockchain can be used to help with democracy but we're actually working with universities to come up with even better voting systems using using blockchain technology amazing amazing um i would i would really love to go deeper into that but let's 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 uh, talk about it later on um Let's talk a little bit. So there, there we can see a, a great way of how you know Guatemalans can interact with Horizon and the possibilities of the things that you can do with it. So um, let's expand on that a little bit more. So yeah. So I want to talk about Horizon. How so? How did you 
uh, bootstrap the network? How do you, how, how are you developing the community you know, for people who are starting out on these projects? I think that's very interesting. So my my co-founder and I actually we bootstrapped it by by self-funding it. Um, the two of us actually provided the the capital needed to launch. Um, but then very quickly from there, uh, it took off as a community project. Um, so we invested into it just to, to launch, but we, we actually didn't take any um, coins for ourselves. So like it, there were other projects that when they launched, the founders you know, keep a certain allocation of the money supply for themselves as a reward. Uh, we didn't want to do that because we cared very much about uh, real decentralization and egalitarianism. We wanted this to be a very egalitarian ecosystem and it's not egalitarian if we control, you know, a very large portion of it because we gave it to ourselves, right? So we wanted to make sure that we're creating a movement here that's actually uh, democratic. So that's that's how we bootstrapped. And we just got very lucky early on to have a very passionate community that supported us. And they rallied behind the project, and it's been growing very fast ever since. Wow, that's an amazing uh, leap of faith there, you know, and just putting capital into something and, and believing in the network effect of it. Effect of it. How do you involve well, people in communities? Like, how, how, how can a project grow a community? Uh, that, that's a great question. So we, we focus on this every single day. We have uh, a dedicated growth team uh, that works. It's spun out of our marketing team. But the, the basic premise is we try to provide incentives. Basically, we give people Zen to perform certain actions within the community to, to basically help build the community. So what we're trying to do essentially is redistribute the Zen that we have um, so that we can grow the network, right? So it's very, very um, idealistic in, in one hand, but we're also very like sophisticated in um, the way we do the economics and the way we do the kind of the technology behind these growth efforts. And so I'll give you a few examples. The biggest growth engine we have is is, is our community hub, and it, it, or like some people call it our faucet. And it's called a faucet because it drips a little bit of zen to every user every single day because we want to give away our zen. Um, and then we ask our users to do certain things sometimes, like, for instance, download the Brave browser was, was one, one thing that we recently asked our, our members to do. Because it's a privacy-oriented web browser, right? Yes, so we we try to promote privacy. Yeah, we try to promote privacy um, and promote promote democracy, and we do that by giving away Zen. And and the, where you can go for this is it's called getzen.cash is the the portal for that. Um, another thing is we created a free education resource because one of the biggest problems in this industry is lack of education, and we want education to be free for our community members. So we created Horizon Academy. So if you go to academy.horizon.global, you can access our free education resource. It's also available in Spanish, which is very important for our Latin American market. And here, we're, we're actually evolving the academy where we're going to pay people to learn. Because again, we, we want to give away our Zen. We want people to have access to it and to spread it all over the world. And we're not going to do that if we just you know keep it all all you know to the company, right? So. We allocate certain resources every month that are part of these giveaways, but the giveaways are focusing on how to grow our, our community. But I'll tell you, the most important part of growth is our team is extremely active and embedded in our community. We're there every single day talking to people. You can talk to me directly um, on any of our community channels, and we're on Telegram, you know, Discord, Reddit, and basically if you go to our website, 
uh, you'll find all of them. But we have, uh, you know, the most important thing is we have an amazing team of human beings that are there on the front lines with our community. And I think that's the most important part of community growth. Wow. Okay, great. So, so basically you kind of, I think you, I could say you hacked the community growth part very well uh, in, in a very um, pragmatic approach of incentivizing people to participate. And, and, and exactly. I, there's, there's no better way to do that than when, once you're in it, you're going to have more interest and then you're going to start paying attention to it. So, um, and around uh, developers, so uh, developer community, people that are building around Horizon. I know you guys uh, have a couple, like a sidechain solution. Um, mm -hmm. could, could you expand a, a bit on that, on, on developers and what, what kind of things are being built around Horizon? Yeah, this is a very important topic, actually, because we're the first network to actively pay developers to develop. And by this, I mean we've created a sidechain technology. And what the difference of a sidechain versus a normal blockchain is a sidechain is a blockchain that runs, is interoperable with our main blockchain. Um, and the reason we did this was uh, I fundamentally do not believe you'll see most of the world's economic activity going through a single blockchain. It's just not going to happen in terms of you know, throughput, these are distributed systems, and you're not going to just have a one blockchain to do everything. So what we created was a very flexible system, technologically, that uses um, uh, side chains that serve certain functions. So you'll have a side chain for real estate, you'll have a side chain for you know, commerce, for merchant adoption, you'll have a side chain for tokenization, you'll have side chains that do specific things. And we created the system so that developers who create sidechain applications actually participate in the transaction revenue that comes from those transactions directly. So you know, even like you don't have to charge clients anything as a developer. You can just launch an application on you know, on Horizon as a sidechain, and now all of a sudden you have a cut in transaction revenue on that sidechain. So it's a very elegant way to incentivize developer um, networks on Horizon. Well, I, I would like to expand a little bit into that because I think it takes a lot of, you know, insight to be able to create a system with that type of vision. I, I, I see a lot of combination there between, like, Bitcoin and Ethereum there. And how, how did you come to, like, this is the way to do it, do a side chain, to make it easy for, for, for side chains to exist? Yeah, I mean, so from a, an architectural perspective... Um, there are many different things you might want to do on a blockchain, and they naturally can compete with each other. So the classic example here with Ethereum had an amazing, like a very viral game called CryptoKitties. It went viral on Ethereum, and what it did was because it was so successful um, and so used by so many people, it actually bogged down the entire network. So if you were trying to run a business on Ethereum, all of a sudden you're competing for bandwidth with a game called CryptoKitties. Right. This is unacceptable yeah. for business, right? You're not gonna have a, a $10 million or a billion dollar blockchain and have to compete with a game called CryptoKitties. So our architecture allows you to have your own blockchain and it, it's interoperable with our main blockchain for security and economies of scale. And the analogy here, which I think is gonna be very important in the coming years is, we've created public-private hybrid where you can launch a private blockchain for your business that uses the public infrastructure of Horizon for security and economies of scale because we have the largest network in the industry 
we have about 40,000 nodes that run our software around the world. Wow. Uh, and you have access to that basically for free by launching your business as a horizon sidechain. Um, and this is why we did, we did it that way. Now, why do we pay developers who launch sidechains? This goes to our core philosophy is if you, if you have an ascent, if you want a sustainable system, you have to compensate people for contributing. And developers are one of the most important contributor groups to any blockchain ecosystem. So you have to have a native way to, to compensate them. And that's what we did. Wow. Also, on, on the node part, like, uh, what are the requirements to set up a node? And, and, and how, can, how can I do it and inform myself a little bit more? Yeah, so I, actually, if you go to our main website, horizon.global, you, we have a whole page dedicated with tutorials and YouTube videos on how you can do it. But basically what it is is, um, you have to have some Zen to stake, and then you have to run a node on probably a dedicated server because it has to be uh, up um, most of the time, uh, you know, 98 to 99% threshold for uptime. So the reason we did this was because we want to have a, a very high quality and persistent network, but we don't want our low quality machines running our software because then they can go down spontaneously and then our network goes down. We actually have very rigorous um, network requirements to, to run a node, which means we have the highest quality and the largest network in the entire industry. So you said around 40,000 nodes. So for our listeners that are not very familiar with crypto, we're talking about 40,000 computers around the world that are running this software and securing the network. That's just a mind-blowing yeah, number. Yeah, and, and with that, I think yeah. we, we will have to close this interview. So Rob, uh, you know, Give us a you know a sentence of, of uh, to close up and uh, and share you know your media where we can follow and inform ourselves. Yeah, I, like I said, the one stop shop is Horizon.Global. Please check out the website. But from there, come and participate. Join our community discussion groups. And what I can say is we we have a revolution going on right now. It's it's the most peaceful, productive revolution in human history, and you should be part of it. Right. So it. You don't have to convince yourself that everything we're doing is perfect in order to just start participating. So get out there today and start participating. Words of wisdom. Words of wisdom. So thank you, Rob, for participating. This was a special edition, special live edition of the DT Podcast number 50. And um, yeah, I hope you can tune in next week. Lo distinto te ha encontrado. Esto es Infinita Podcast. Encuentra nuevos episodios cada semana. Suscríbete. 